We'll start in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with, excuse me, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall Well, Paul, if you've been through the Corinthian series with us back in chapter 10, Paul is certainly hearkening back to the Old Testament uh, Exodus story, the the wandering in the wilderness, which we'll touch this evening. And uh, I wanted to draw attention uh, to what Paul had to say in those latter verses. He, He begins to list specific Sins that they craved evil, that they were idolaters, that they acted immorally, that they grumbled, right? So he, he, he lists some specific sins, and we'll see those bubble to the top tonight as we look in these chapters of Numbers 13 through 19. Well, let me, let me kind of give you a... Uh, I like to try to zero down where we're going in one sentence, so let me kind of give you the snapshot and then we'll, we'll try to walk through the first 12 chapters really quickly of Numbers so that we can get to uh, seven chapters that we obviously won't be able to read nor cover all of tonight. But we'll, we'll try to uh, scrape across the top of those and find some, some meat. So here's, here's the statement. Despite God's faithfulness and loving kindness, the rebellion of Israel was manifested in the unbelief of complaining. All right, let me say that again. All right. Despite God's faithfulness and loving kindness, the rebellion of Israel was manifested in the unbelief of complaining. All right. And I'll try to give uh, attention to that statement so that uh, it, it may make more sense. Well, Ben, if you don't mind, um, Popping up this, it may be hard to see. If it is, it's okay. I'm going to try to walk us through those first 12 chapters. But uh, if you've never uh, watched the Bible Project videos, you should do that. They're they're so helpful and they are great summaries. And uh, the guy who reads them, I just find his voice to uh, be helpful in in understanding his inflection and all that. It's good. Um, well, this is the number one. This is just a screenshot. Uh, of, of the numbers summary. 
And I just want to kind of walk us through that. Really, there's, uh, you'll see three sections. Uh, the first three sections are what we have pushed through, or we'll touch the third one tonight. But Israel prepares to enter the promised land. That's the first ten chapters. Then they travel, marching from Sinai to Kadesh, which is where we'll um, find ourselves tonight. Uh, arriving in chapter 13, where they begin to wander for 40 years. This is where everything goes wrong. Up until this point, um, there's, there certainly has been some grumbling along the way. But uh, even despite the grumbling, uh, it's, like the, it's like the family vacation, right? Uh, it may be a 10-hour trip to the beach, and about hour 7 or 8, you're just ready to get out of the car, right? You, you hear the chat in the background. The kids are agitated with one another. You're hungry. You're tired. And, uh, your back is sweaty uh, against the, uh, the seat that you've been sitting in for eight hours. But you know the beach is coming, right? You know it's about to, to, to be there. And so you can kind of endure this miserable eight to ten hour trip because you know there's a reward at the end. Well, the people of Israel are kind of in that boat. They've certainly complained. Uh, the manna, uh, they're, they're tired of the manna. Those... Uh, They don't have available to drink what they would like to drink along the way. And there's other little things they complain about. But they still know that God has delivered them from Egypt. And not only delivered them, but he has provided for them. And they know they're headed to the promised land that he's promised them. So there's still this hope that they are looking forward to. Numbers is carrying forward the story of Israel after their exodus from Egypt. God has brought them to Mount Sinai and had entered into a covenant with them there. Despite Israel breaking the covenant in their rebellion, God still graciously provides a way for the people to live near his holy presence in the tabernacle. So he's with them. After one year, stay in Sinai. The people of Israel begin to journey to the land that was promised them by God. And after a census was taken, God gives the leaders of Israel laws about how the tribes are to be arranged, including keeping the tabernacle at the center, surrounding that tabernacle with the Levites and priests, and then moving out in each direction, the three three tribes on each side of the tabernacle with Judah being at the head. So all these specific instructions that we find leading up to here. The 12 tribes of Israel arranged in such a way that would make plain to the people of Israel that his presence was to be at the center of their lives. All these things kind of come to the surface as we push through numbers. And here in numbers, the the Levitical laws concerning the purity of the people are elaborated on, emphasizing how God's people must live if they are to dwell in his presence. It's kind of like Hunter was saying uh, about the sermon this morning. It's like God has accomplished this so that therefore let's live like this. Well, That's the same reality that we see in numbers. God has done this. Therefore, we are to live his presence among us. Therefore, we should live pure lives. And soon the cloud of God's presence will lift from the tabernacle and guide God's people away from Sinai and into the wilderness. One chapter into his into this journey, the people immediately begin to complain. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they want to go back to Egypt. Even Moses' own brother and sister openly complain about his leadership. They complain against him. And in chapter 13, tonight's text, the people of Israel have arrived at the desert of Paran, at Kadesh. 
which is about halfway to the promised land. So they're halfway there. And we find ourselves with the people of Israel in chapter 13. And it's here that we pick up. Let me read the first two verses of chapter 13. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. All right. Well, those first two verses are uh, loaded. Like I'm, I'm already thinking as I begin to prepare for teaching tonight. If the first two verses are loaded and I'm covering seven chapters, how are we possibly going to do this? Well, let's let's take these two verses and kind of propel ourselves into the rest of these chapters. God once again states to Moses in these first couple of verses what he will do. All right. He's already promised them. He's just reminding them of the promise that he's made. And the promise is this. I will give you the land of Canaan. It's yours. The same God who just delivered you out of Egypt. He's the one making this promise. Well, if anybody has reason to believe that God will fulfill his promise, it's these people. But the promise is accompanied by, I think, two important instructions. There's two things that follow in these couple of verses. And it's this. A leader from every tribe is to be selected. All right. Now, they didn't. It's not random. Right. This is not um, a bunch of ping pong balls with your name on it in the, uh, the machine. And whatever one comes to top, you pull out. Right. And oh, so and so, you're going to be the selected member. No. They said, pick a leader from every tribe. So think about that. From every tribe, we get to pick one leader. We're going to pick the best of the best of each tribe. Then they had one job. All right. This is the, the, the best each tribe could come up with. So the 12 best men that we could find, they have one job. Spy out the land of Canaan for 40 days. All right. So we want the 40 best men, I mean, excuse me, 12 best men for 40 days to go spy out the land of Canaan. The spying was to determine several things as we read through the text to figure out how many people are there. Is it a few or is it many? How strong are they? Are they strong or are they weak? How was the land? Was it good land or was it bad land? What are their cities like? How are the cities? Are they open or are they fortified? And again, he asked about the land, but from a different perspective. How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees there or not? Well, the best way to figure that out is while the 12 spires are there, they should take fruit from the land and bring it back so that we'll, we'll know what it's like. Right? So you find in verses 18 through 20 what's going on here. See what the land is like, whether the people who are there living it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many. So he's going through these questions and they come back to give a report. And this is what they say in verse 27. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruits. Well, what they handle is this bunch of grapes that it took two men to carry so they broke it off and it took two men to carry this back 
two of the spies to carry it back to the people. And so you can only imagine, if it took two men to carry this cluster of grapes, they had to have been big and juicy. They had to have been great. And they describe it, say, look, it's flowing with milk and honey. This is as prime real estate as you could possibly imagine. But look at verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And they go on to describe um, how big the people were. Not even just in the cities, but even the surrounding people groups around the area. Basically, they're saying the whole place is full of these monstrous people. And so, though they come back with all the report that they've been asked to come back with, they stated their opinion. In verse 28, the word nevertheless emphasizes the people's doubt, not in their ability, not in the ability of the people of Israel, but listen to this. They were stating their doubt in the faithfulness of God. Because he had already said to them, I will give you the land of Canaan. So when they come back with their report, what they're saying, when they say, nevertheless, they're saying, and we doubt that God can really give us that victory. We doubt that God can give us that land. Despite Caleb's confidence, who would stand up against the 10 negative assessments of the land, Caleb confidently stands and says that Israel should trust and obey God by going and taking possession of the land. Again, a land that's flowing with milk and honey and the remaining spies state their opinion and give the bad report. We're not able. We're not able. But listen to the rebellion of the people of Israel. Let's skip into chapter 14 for a minute. We're going to try to push through so that we have time to talk for a few minutes at the end. It says, then all the congregation lifted up their voices And cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel, listen to the word used here, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This is their response to the spies assessment. What the, it, what the people of Israel began to do is to look to the future and imagine what will happen if they obey God. And they imagine the horrors of defeat. Imagining the horrors of defeat exposed their belief in God or their unbelief in God. They did not believe God would be faithful and deliver the land. They did not believe that God would be able to deliver upon his promises. They did not believe that God was sovereign enough to deliver them from all the horrors that they could imagine. Well, they had no reason to believe that things were going to turn out the way they begin to describe. Listen again to verse 3 of chapter 14. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Who put that in their mind? Who put that in their mind? They had no idea how this would turn out. But their minds have run off and they begin to imagine the worst of the worst. 
And it was all rooted in unbelief. They were imagining their future and considering that God couldn't fulfill his promise to them. And that's where they find themselves. They complained because they didn't believe God. Now you may remember the opening statement I said. Despite God's faithfulness, he had proven all along that he was faithful. And they had complained and grumbled before now. They had had all kinds of missteps and yet God's loving kindness remained with them. So despite God's faithfulness and loving kindness, the rebellion of Israel was manifested. All right. So they're rebelling against God and it's manifested in the unbelief. Listen to this of complaining. Do you want to quickly identify if unbelief is in your heart? Ask yourself a question. Do I complain? Am I a complainer? And if you find that to be the case, then you can just about guarantee that there's unbelief in your heart. And I'm not even talking about unbelief in God. I'm saying unbelief in what you're complaining against. Of course, here it is God that they lack faith in. Complaining always comes from those who don't trust in the leaders, right? So here they, they, they don't trust Moses because they don't trust Moses as God. And this is what happens again and again in the book of Numbers. In chapter 16, we'll see that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram all complain and grumble against the leaders. Then again in chapter 17, these same grumblings are addressed by a whole other group of rebels. They're complaining because when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rise up against Moses and Aaron... God deals harshly with them and they blame Moses and Aaron for that. And so they begin to grumble against the people who were done away with for grumbling. Complainers will just say, like we see evidence in the book of Numbers. They'll just say a little here, state a concern that they may have there. Voice a little disagreement here. Raise a question there. Acknowledge some good things, but make sure you mention that one point of contention. Well, that's exactly what's happening in the book of Numbers. Complaining was a lack of faith. In in Israel's case, they're questioning God himself. Complaining says, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're there for me in the future. And Paul used this in the book of Corinthians to warn the city of Corinth in his day to the believers there. This was his great warning to them in chapter 10 that we started off with. Well, in Numbers, upon the pushback of the people from Moses, Aaron, and Caleb, the people of Israel were ready to stone their leaders before God intervenes. So they're so frustrated. their, Their lack of belief that God will really do this has led them... To the point where they're ready to stone Moses, Aaron, and Caleb. They want to pull them aside and stone them. And God has to, listen to this. God has to show up in glory. Is what the text says. His glory is manifested. He shows up in glory to stop the people of Israel from stoning their leaders. Their God-appointed leaders. Verse 10 says, but the congregation said to them, stone them with stones. Then 
the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. It was in their sin. It was in their complaint. It was in their unbelief that the glory of God shows up to stop them in their tracks. God arrives in glory. And then listen to Moses' prayer. It, it's baffling to me that they would be ready to stone Moses. Listen to his prayer. He says, but now, verse 17 of chapter 14, I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you declare. So he's about to be stoned. God stops it and this is what he prays. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Then listen to verse 19. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So he prays this glorious, God-exalting prayer. And he's praying down the grace of God on the very people who were seeking to stone him. This is Moses' prayer. He has such an accurate picture of God. Well, as a short bit of application, let me say to you, when opposition may arise, pray like Moses. When you face opposition in your life, maybe even from particular people, pray like Moses. Pray for God's grace in their lives. Well, look with me in verse 20. We'll continue on. It says, so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. So he says, I'm answering your prayer, Moses. I'll answer your prayer. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Amen. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to the fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Let's be reminded. Let's be reminded of the danger of complaining against God. Let's be reminded of that. God is certainly full of grace. He says ten times this has happened. And He continues to show them grace. But there is consequence to unbelief. There is consequence to unbelief. And we, just, we, we should always keep that in mind. We should always be reminded of the consequence of unbelief. But listen to what he says in the very next verse. Verse 24 of chapter 14. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. Well, there's two things about Caleb that stand out. He had a different spirit. And he followed God fully. Well, the same way that I would say pray like Moses, I'd say be like Caleb. Be like Caleb. Ask God to give you his spirit and follow him fully. Well, after being exposed, the people of Israel now say they believe. All right. So God confronts him. He shows up in glory. Now they're like, okay, you were wrong. Caleb was right. We should should take the land. And so a small group of men 
go now. They, they've seen the error of their ways. And so they go and they try to take the land of Canaan. And what happens to them? They're destroyed. They're wiped out. It doesn't work. Well, that seems a little contradictory. But the reality is... They didn't go because they were in faith leaning on the promise that God had already given them. They were going in frustration because God had shut them down when he showed up in all his glory. From this point forward, where they're held at bay now because of their lack of faith, because of their unbelief, They've, they've gotten right up to the promised land. The spies go in. And as the spies go in, come back with a negative report. They're ready to stone Moses and them. God shows up in glory. They're confronted. They're exposed. And from that point forward, you would think, let's get things right. Let's take a step back. Let's get things right. Well, for 40 years, God's punishment, this generation will die out for their unbelief. And we'll allow Caleb to take the next generation into the promised land. You would think that there would be a, a soberness after such a strong rebuke from the Lord. But we'll find in chapters 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, three consecutive chapters, more of the same from the people of Israel. More grumbling, more complaining, more frustration. More rebellion, more disobedience. In Numbers 15, verses 39 and 48, God gives them an opportunity to self-reflect. He gives them an opportunity to be mindful of what they say and what they do. And this is something that he says to them. It shall be, Numbers chapter 15, 39. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So he's told them to attach a tassel to their garment. A blue tassel is to be attached to their garment. So as to do to them, excuse me, as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So he's saying, just obey God's commands. Quit following your own heart and your own ways. From your own eyes. After which, listen to what he says. You played the harlot. If you want to trust in your heart, let me tell you what you're trusting in. This is what he says to him. The heart of a harlot. Why would you trust that? He says in verse 40. So that you remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your guys. He's, he's saying every day you put your clothes on, attach this blue tassel to it. So that you'll be reminded that you have a wicked heart. And that you should follow God's commands. That tassel should be a reminder. That should be a reminder to you of how your heart will fail you. How your own way will fail you. And how you should trust in the Lord. If we're struggling to trust and obey God, we should learn from the instructions here. Do not follow after your own heart. Listen to this. Unless your heart is wholeheartedly trusting in God. Is God always before you? What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust in the Lord. How do we trust in Him? With all your heart. Well, how does that square with Numbers 15? Or square with Jeremiah when he says, Your heart is deceitful beyond all things. How do those line up? How can we read in Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart? Well, I think 
the rest of Proverbs, these next couple of phrases help explain to us. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Well, it depends on what your heart is fixed on. If your heart is fixed on your knowledge, your ways, what you want, it's not trustworthy. But if somehow this part of ours that's so prone to play the role of the harlot can get fixed on God, then it becomes not deceitful, but trustworthy. Trustworthy to know and understand and follow the will of God. Numbers. I realize we're not touching these last chapters. Chapter 18, by the way, uh, if you... um, Before I make a closing statement, I'll just kind of give you two snapshots because it was impossible to cover all this ground. Chapter 18, if you want a book on... uh, It's Old Testament, but it's, it's good... Um, premise for how we give. Um, it, it's an excellent chapter on tithing. And I love what it says to the priest. They, they tithe a tithe of the tithe. Does that make sense? They gave a tenth of what was given to the house of the Lord. And then chapter 19 um, gives us a, a picture of being cleansed from sin. It's a, it's a brutal picture. Think back to Stephen's uh, uh, Tasting the Truth uh, theological discourse on uh, sacrifices, right? Uh, it's this gory picture of um, the price of being cleansed from sin, purification being made. Before I give my summary, let me give one more uh, slight picture of uh, two things, the rebellion of the people of Israel and God's um, God's grace to his people. So I, I say 17, it's chapter 16. Uh, in the rebellion of the people, uh, I mentioned those three men, uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, had tried to raise up the people of Israel to oppose Moses and Aaron so that they could stone them to death and select a new leader and just go back to Egypt. And God deals with them harshly. Well, uh, with them was a large group of the Levites who would have been people that you would think would, this would be trustworthy. They're, they're, they're rallying around them. Uh, a contingency of people that can go back. And this is what happens. God slaughters them all. He, he opens up the earth and swallows them. Fire comes down and consumes 250 more people. And then, it's amazing. Walking among the people, appealing to God for His grace. It says this in verse 41. Well, let me start in verse 42. It says, It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they had turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Here's God's glory appearing again. Uh, I'll skip down to verse 46. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it, she's put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation, and listen to this, and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. And so Aaron here represents um, um, so much of what um, Christ does for us. In the midst of our rebellion, here is a man who's being rebelled against as a representative of God. 
walking among the people, pleading with God to withhold his wrath and show his grace. To withhold his wrath and show his grace. So it's just another picture in the book of Numbers that emphasizes what I said at the beginning. Despite God's faithfulness and loving kindness, the rebellion of Israel is manifested in unbelief, in the unbelief of complaining. But here's what happens. This is my last little remark. Though this vicious cycle of rebellion and complaining and grumbling and pushing against what God would have, God continues to show up for the people of Israel full of grace. Demonstrating grace to them. Relenting, pouring out His full wrath. And He does so by appearing in glory time and time again. For two reasons. And they're so linked together. Because He has made a promise that He will be faithful to fulfill. And despite our rebellion, He still loves us. His faithfulness and His love are so intertwined for His people that we, despite our unbelief, despite our grumbling and complaining, gives us opportunity to repent and to trust and obey. And I pray that we'll hear from the book of Numbers God's call for us to do just that. Well, let me pray and then we'll have an opportunity to talk for a few minutes. Father, help us to absorb, to soak in chapters like these and to be sobered by the reality that we're so much like the people of Numbers, the people of Israel in Moses' day. We're not different than them. We're not better than them. We're like them. And we need your loving kindness to be displayed for us time and time again. Father, I pray that you would not only remain faithful as we know you will, but that you would grant us faith. That you would grant us faith, not just to believe in Christ for salvation, but that we would continue to trust him day by day so that we live life in a way that preaches the gospel to those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I don't know how we're typically doing this, but have we been opening up for some discussion at the end? Uh, that, that scares me more than trying to cover seven chapters <laughs> because there's so much that we can't cover. And uh, there's probably a thousand questions that you could uh, pummel me with. But any, any thoughts or questions?